Lord, we come this morning asking for your help. Lord, this is not an easy passage for us to work through. There are issues, Lord, that flow out of it that are daunting, and yet, Lord, in your providence and in the, the, the plan of walking through a book, we must deal with these things. And so, Lord, I ask that you would give us hearts that are teachable, uh, minds that are able to think through these things carefully and clearly. I would ask, Lord, that as your messenger, that I would reflect the truth of your text. And, Lord, what we, what we know not, Lord, would you teach us? What we are not, Lord, would you make us? And what we have not, Lord, would you give us? We ask this, Lord. We plead with you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. It's worth noting as we look back at the biblical stories, as we think through the history of Israel, and as we kind of contemplate the history of the church, that we tend to focus on the men that God used. And there's nothing wrong with that kind of focus. God did work his plan in mighty ways through many great men of faith. Imperfect men, to be sure, but men who gave themselves for the honor of God and for the cause of Christ. And when I, I say men, these are the kind of men that come to mind. It's certainly not an exhaustive list, but let me just rattle a few off to you. Noah, Job, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Samuel, David, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Peter, Matthew, Luke, Paul, Timothy, James, Philemon, and that's just a short list. But we must never forget, because Scripture never forgets, that God also worked his plan and will through many great women of faith. And the women that would come to mind are Sarah, Rachel, Hannah, Deborah, Esther, Ruth, Naomi, Miriam, Elizabeth, Mary, um, Mary Magdalene, Priscilla, Mary and Martha, Again, that's not an exhaustive list, but it certainly is a list of, of women that we are familiar with. So the men we would call heroes of the faith and the women we would call heroines of the faith. But in our text today, in these seven verses, we have a text that is screaming to us of the heroism of two midwives by the name of Shifra and Puah. And when was the last time you met someone named Shifra or Pua? When was the last time someone named their children that you know Shifra or Pua? They're not common names at all, but they are beautiful names because they remind us of the power of their legacy, which is worth remembering. I remember when our children were young and our child was in the womb and my wife and I were talking about the names that maybe we would call our children. Maybe some of you were there or some of you have been there recently. And I found that there was a pattern that was taking place in my mind. I disliked or liked the name based on people I had known. So kids I grew up with that were a pain, they were off the list. Classmates that were strange, they were off the list. Former girlfriends, they were off the list. But good friends, faithful friends, people who loved me or looked out for me, people I respected and that were godly examples, those names 
were attractive to me. So the name Shifra means beautiful one. The name Pua means splendid one. And this story reveals to us that they lived up to their names. And friends, the text is clear that Shifra and Pua were the kind of women that we should remember. Moses, who's writing this account here for the second generation of, of Israel who are wandering in the wilderness, he wants to be sure that they remember these ladies. Now, this text and the Exodus story deliberately and purposely does something so that these ladies are lifted up to be seen. The name of the king of Egypt, if you noticed, the powerful pharaoh of Egypt, who is someone that we really don't need to remember. He's simply just a pawn that God is using in a story. His name is never mentioned. But here, these two ladies, you want to be sure you're paying attention to them. You want to watch them. You want to see how they honor God. You want to see how they stand up and uh, uh, up to the oppressor because of their priority. And their priority, as we see in this text, is that they are not fearful of man. They're fearful of the Lord. And I think that our culture is in a gender identity crisis on many fronts. And I think you recognize that that to be true. But what this text and others like it remind us of is that when, when it comes to determining whether someone is a godly woman or a godly man, it isn't somehow their conformity to the standards of our culture, but it's in their character and their desire to be conformed to the will of God. Now, in our context, in our culture today, you might think that a, a real woman is is either one of two things. And these are extremes, and this is a simplistic way of looking at it. But on one hand, they're really more like men. What's popular today, especially if you're watching something on TV, is a woman who is tough, and she's rugged, and she can fight, and she can shoot a gun, and she can wield a sword, and she can hold a shield. I mean, she's a, a Viking warrior. And if that isn't true, then she's a beautiful bombshell with great sex appeal. And of course, the ultimate woman that is portrayed is a combination of both. And then if you look at how culture is now portraying men, you basically have two fronts. You have a, a real man as a fierce MMA machine. It's a mixed martial arts machine who can endure living in the wild without care for fending himself. And he usually has some kind of a long beard and no hair. I don't mean to point anyone out in here, right? On the other hand, real men are sensitive and more feminine in many ways. And friends, although these caricatures are simplistic, I understand that's true, but they do remind us that when society determines what is womanly and manly, it is usually a distortion of what God's word teaches. And what scripture emphasizes is not the nuance of someone's physical presence or their loves. It emphasizes character, a character that is rooted in their love for God and stands out and is evidence of the fear of God in their lives. And such character is settled and foundational 
in their lives. In our text, we see two women, two midwives who are honored by the Lord because they feared God. Now, maybe, as midwives often are, they were strong matronly types, if you know what I'm talking about. Maybe their other name was Hildegard or right, Gertrude, and we're going to come in and get this baby out, right? But that's not, that's not what God is emphasizing, right? The emphasis here is in their character. He wants us to see that in their context of living life in a foreign land, that they are faced with trials and challenges, but in their heart, they're rooted to the fear of God. And friends, it's clear from this text that what drove the actions was an unwavering conviction that fearing God was far more important than fearing a powerful and ruthless political leader. You can't help but be attracted to their character or their cleverness or their calm and their commendation from God. These heroines are truly uh, attractive. And I would even say addictive heroines. See how I did that. Living life, friends, in a foreign land demands an unwavering commitment to the fear of the Lord rather than man. And this is what we're talking about. They're in a foreign land. And it's tough. It's tough because Pharaoh has already started his strategy of enslaving the Israel people. But now they're faced with a new challenge. This life of blessing and bitterness is a difficult life to navigate. But as we seek to navigate it, we must think and act with a heart that fears God rather than man. Now, I'm going to walk you through the text to begin with, and just as we walking through, kind of nuance some things from the text and maybe land the plane with a couple of points that I think really flow out of the text that are relevant for us today. But first, I want you to notice that there is a progression of the events in chapter 1, verses 7 through 22. Pharaoh will eventually implement three growing and developing strategies to stifle the growth of Israel. He begins, if you remember, with slavery. Right? The, the Israelites have, been, have changed in their status. They were people who were welcome in the land, living on the land, primarily uh, people who took care of cattle. But because they were growing fast, he implements a slavery on them. He enslaves them, and they're now used to build these cities. But we're going to find that slavery moves then to what I'm calling a secret form of abortion. Because it's right at the moment of birth that these babies then are they're commanded to kill them. And we're going to end up in verse 22 with just an outright infanticide where they're throwing every son of the Hebrews into the Nile. Slavery, abortion, infanticide. Now friends, this text reveals two ways these women demonstrated a commitment to the fear of God in the face of an evil leader. So let's look, first of all, at their civil disobedience. First of all, I want you to notice Pharaoh's command. Let's read it in verse 15 and 16. And the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, 
one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. As I've already alluded to, these verses highlight the midwives and their faithfulness to God. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, is not given a name. He's just an instrument in the hand of the Lord. But these two women are named so that we will remember them forever. Now, Shifra and Pua were probably not the only midwives. I mean, just think about it. If Israel was multiplying that fast, you're going to need a lot of midwives, right? But more than likely, they were like the leaders of the guild of midwives. And so Pharaoh is giving his command to the leaders to, to continue that command down. And he's expecting what he's saying to be obeyed. Why? Because he's Pharaoh, right? And so they're given this horrific command. And, you know, just what we've read there, when you, you know, the, when you serve as a midwife, he says there to the Hebrew women, and see them on the stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. Just think about that. Just think about what is being said. Now, there's a couple of questions that we want to we ask here. Number one, why did Pharaoh order the killing of boys and not girls? Some have scratched their head thinking there's something wrong with this story because that's not the best policy. If you kill the boys and let the girls live, aren't you still making way for the population of Israel to grow? Shouldn't it be in the reverse? Why kill what will be the strongest part of your workforce to build store cities and pyramids? Doesn't it make sense that if you want to control the population, you want to kill the women who might give birth? One man could have children with multiple women, but a woman can only have one man's child at a time. Wouldn't it make sense to kill the women rather than the boys? Well, that certainly is one angle to what's going on here. Many people have speculated about this. Maybe Pharaoh wanted to get rid of the boys so that uh, as the girls grew up, he could have them as a sort of harem for himself and for his people. Or maybe Pharaoh thought to himself, the women are dependent on the men to farm the land grow the crops, and bring in a harvest. So if you take them out of the way, they too will have difficulty in survival. So there's a couple of different possibilities. But the best explanation, friends, comes right from the text. And I would draw your attention to verse 10. And in verse 10, he tells us what he's fearing and what is behind what he's doing in these strategies. It says, come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So it appears that Pharaoh's biggest priority was to take away any opportunity for Israel to join forces with the enemy. So killing the boys would take away the possibility of boys growing up and being a strong presence for any invading army for them to join. It was a long-term strategy of sorts. Now, next question is this. What were the midwives instructed to do? Again, let's read it carefully. When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. Now, the word birth stool literally translates pair of stones. And it gives a picture here of, of, of a, a platform or some kind of contraption or place where, the, where the, the Hebrew woman would actually give birth. 
And the idea then is that they would give birth, the midwife would take that child away and check it out. It's a boy. That boy then would be killed, suffocated, presumably. All right? If it was a girl, it would, it would live. All right? But they were to do it quietly. They were to do it in such a way that that, that, that mother wouldn't know what happened to that child and why that child was dead. But when you pause and you think about it, there would be space between, uh, um, well, you know, over the course of time, if, if this happened, let's say in the course of a week, and there were five women who gave birth to boys and another five women who gave birth to girls, and all the boys were dead, word would get out, wouldn't it? And they would say, I don't think we want these midwives to help us here. They would be very, very suspicious. So in one sense, if you think about it, this was a plan that could only fail. It really could not be carried out well. But at the same time, it's what Pharaoh had ordered. And friends, what we have here in this edict, in this command, is the willful murder of innocent children. It is state-run state-initiated infanticide or abortion of a particular ethnic group. This is the first form of targeted anti-Semitism to be carried out by the very ones that a woman would be trusting to carry her through her pregnancy and delivery. This gets to the heart of the issue, doesn't it? And it was truly an unconscionable policy that was the enemy of life. In giving this command, Pharaoh was running contrary to the creation mandate of God in which God told his people, be fruitful and multiply. Now remember, the reason that the children of Israel are multiplying is not because they're on a keto diet or that they're taking fertility pills. There is something happening because of God's promise of blessing that is driving the multiplication of the Hebrew people. It was the promise that God gave to Abraham and reinforced to Isaac and then to Jacob. And now this blessing is happening among the people. So Pharaoh isn't really challenging the people of Israel. He's challenging God himself. He is anti-God with this commandment. And if Pharaoh is anti-God, then he's also anti-Christ. Let me draw your attention and turn your Bibles to the book of Matthew, if you would, please. Turn to Matthew. This is so important for us to see, and there's a reason why the book of Matthew begins the way it does. We take into consideration now this promise given to Abraham and this promise ultimately being fulfilled in Christ... Now notice Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, the son of who? Abraham. Now obviously, son of David and Abraham, there is lots of space in between, but the point here is to say, Jesus is a descendant of David who is a descendant of Abraham. You see the connection here. If Pharaoh is anti-God, then also he is anti-Christ because he is standing in the way, seeking to tear down God's plan of multiplication in Israel that would ultimately end up in the birth of Christ. I think Philip Ryken summarizes it well when he says the following. Pharaoh's attempt to exterminate the sons of Israel 
anticipated all the antichrists of history. Wherever there is a reign of terror or culture of death, Satan is trying to destroy the work of God. The slogans change, but the sin remains the same. Whether it's Adolf Hitler and his final solution for eliminating the Jews, or communist China and its one-family, one-child policy, or the pro-choice movement in the West, opposition to life is always hatred of God. It's a powerful statement. I think there's a lot for us to think through there, and I would agree with what he's saying. So here is this command. Now the question is, how would the midwives respond? It says in verse 17, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the text here is very clear about how the midwives responded. Right out of the stalls, Moses isn't isn't messing around. He's being guided by the hand of the Spirit of God, and he wants us to know that these women feared God, and that fear of God drove or motivated these women to respond in the way that they did. And although they have been given a commandment by the most powerful man that they knew, they would not be willing to follow his command. Now, I have to get your, get your mind into the, the head of a midwife for a moment and consider what they're likely thinking. And I realize this is speculation, but I hope that you understand this is not too off the topic or outside the box. Midwives likely saw their work as a noble calling. <laughs> We're bringing life into the world. They had dedicated their lives to medical care, to the help of women and children. They had helped many others and their their babies survive desperate deliveries. And I'm sure they had had to comfort many women whose babies did not make it through the birthing process. But Pharaoh is asking them to do and to tell all the other midwives to do goes completely against their nature. The last thing Shifra and Pua would ever do is to take an innocent life. Now, I don't know exactly what the midwives understood. We're not told. We're just told they feared God. But maybe they were familiar with God's words to Noah, Genesis 9, verse 6, where it says this, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Now, their response ultimately is, I don't think so. But more formally, it comes in two different parts, right? First of all, there's a refusal. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. And then there's a protection dynamic. They let the male children live. It's all stated in one sentence. But we're not going to do what you want us to do, and we're going to make sure that these boys live. You get that? There's two parts to this here. It's not a passive response, but an active one. They would not do as Pharaoh commanded, and they let, they made sure the male children would live. This was their mode of operation for some time, months, years. We're not too sure exactly the distance between verse 16 and verse 18. What the midwives did in refusing to obey the command of Pharaoh in Egypt was what we call today an act of civil disobedience. Pharaoh, the civil authority over Egypt, and therefore the Hebrew people, gave the midwives a direct order, and they disobeyed it. 
Now, friends, this is what God's people have done through the years and should always do when the laws of men contradict the laws of God. We are citizens of a heavenly kingdom first, and that kingdom is the kingdom where God sits as the final authority. We're citizens, secondly, of our various countries. And then he might even say third, in the states in which we live. And as Peter and the other apostles said, we must obey God rather than men. So this principle is being played out before our eyes with these midwives, with these simple, ordinary, responsible, God-fearing midwives. There are times, friends, when Christians not only have the right to resist, but they also have the responsibility to resist. Now, I want you to think about what I'm about to say. These midwives, by the refusal to obey Pharaoh's command, started a revolution that would eventually end up liberating the Jews and slaves in Egypt. We could say that Shifra and Pua are the first pro-life heroines. They fully believed and fought for the sanctity of life in their context, and they did it in a foreign land and in the face of a powerful king. They truly are women of conviction and courage, and they are to be admired and held in honor and as an example for us all. May God raise up more Shifras and Puas. And as you're thinking about a name for your daughter, put them on the list. I know you'll cross them off really fast, but remember the legacy. Remember the legacy. It's part of the reason they're here. Remember these women. Remember their strength of character. Remember to whom they are ultimately accountable and how that drives them to act in the way that they do. Now, that's their civil disobedience. That one's kind of a, an easy one to walk through. But now we move into the next thing. And the next one is a little bit more difficult. I'm calling it their shrewd speech. It would appear that there was some time, some significant time between command, the command in verse 16 and Pharaoh's summons in verse 18. Now, we don't know what motivated the next encounter between Pharaoh and the Hebrew midwives. It was probably one of Pharaoh's people. That expression, Pharaoh's people, is used a number of times and probably talking about those who were in leadership with him. Someone who had some understanding of what Pharaoh had, had commanded these midwives. And by the way, what Pharaoh's commanding the midwives appears to be something that was done somewhat secretively. I mean, you don't, you don't tell the midwives to do something that you're publicly kind of announcing because then the, the women aren't going to come to the midwives, right? So this is a secret kind of a thing that's taking place. So one of his people probably was out saying, uh, Pharaoh, you know you talked about um, these boys being killed at birth. I've seen a number of little toddlers running around, and they look like boys to me. What's up with that? So the Hebrew midwives are summoned to Pharaoh to give account. Now notice Pharaoh's question. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? Now this obviously was a question that the midwives knew was going to be asked at some time. <laughs> when you're given a command 
and you don't do what you're told, you're waiting now for that authority to come back to you and say, why have you not been obedient? And they are summoned into his presence. And here the question really has two parts again. Why have you done this, disobeyed my order? Why have you let the boys live? And the idea here is that it's not just let, it's actively let the boys live. You disobeyed my order and you have acted against my order to make sure the boys live. Now, if you think about it, likely what happened here is very, very simple. They just simply refused the order and they carried on doing what they always do as midwives, helping these women and these families give birth to their sons and daughters. And maybe there was an aspect that said, hey, listen, you have a boy, so just be careful here. All right? Wrap it up a little bit to make sure that no one knows that it's a boy, but this is a boy, so be, be, be careful with that. Somehow they went through that. But notice their response. And this is where we're going to spend a good bulk of our time. The midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Now, the implication of what the midwives are saying is that by the time the midwives arrive, the family has already welcomed the child, and there was no way secretly to put that child to death. So it also seems to be somewhat of a jab against the Egyptian women. Apparently, the Egyptian women were somewhat passive. In other words, yes, I'm going to give birth to this child, but, but have someone take that child away, and they're going to raise it. Whereas the Hebrew women were not, went that way. They were vigorous. They were going to give birth to that child, but they wanted that child right away. Okay? So there may be some truth to what they're saying, but the point is that they were deliberately being evasive and misleading in their response. Now we start getting into some stuff that starts to make us a little bit uncomfortable. If you ever took an ethics or a philosophy class in college, your professor probably took you to this passage and said something like this. Was it wrong for the Hebrew midwives to lie to Pharaoh? It's a tough question. Good, godly people disagree on. The other question is found in Joshua 2. We're not going to spend time there, but there Rahab, she hid the Hebrew spies. And when she was asked if she had seen the spies, she gives an answer that is a complete lie to protect those spies. Was it right for her to tell a lie to protect the spies? Now, friends, the classic example that is given about this dilemma comes from the Second World War. A Nazi commander comes to your house during World War II and asks, are you hiding Jews? And you are hiding Jews. Now, what are you obligated to say? What is the right thing to do? Do you say, yes, I'm hiding two Jews. They're in the room upstairs, second door on the right. Their names are Isaac and Reuben. That would likely result in both you and them being killed. Them because they're Jews. You because you have been hiding Jews. Or do you say, Jews? I haven't seen any Jews. Have you seen any Jews? There's no Jews in this house. Now, are you obligated to tell the, the Nazi officer the truth? Is it violating God's standard if you don't speak the truth? Were Shifra and Pua obligated to tell the truth? Did they, in giving some kind of half-truth at best, commit a sin? Well, let's think through this question for a little bit. Theologians for centuries 
have distinguished among three types of lies. And I'm going to add a fourth, not because I'm a great theologian, but I think there's something in our culture that helps us kind of wrap our hands around this. Because we know as Christians that we are not to do what? Lie. What's one of the foundational things you tell your children as you're raising them? Don't lie. Be a person who speaks the truth. So this is, this is a dilemma. So first of all, as we think about the different kinds of, of lies, there's first of all the malicious lie. And the malicious lie is a lie that you, 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 um, you make to serve yourself and to harm your neighbor. It's always wrong. It's the kind of lie that the ninth commandment is talking about where it says you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You're saying and speaking an untruth about your neighbor should never do that, okay, in that context. Then there's what's called a jocular lie. I know, jocular, what does that mean? It comes from the word, you know, right, joking, jesting, right, to amuse with falsehood. It's the, the lie that could be right or wrong depending on the context. Um, a few years ago, um, we had a bunch of people gathered in my house probably about 50 or so of them, so that I could surprise my wife on her birthday. And I'm sure that in the whole process of, hey, honey, what are we doing today, that I said some things that weren't exactly truth. They may have been words that were manipulative or shady or deceptive or outright untruths, but that isn't considered a sin. We understand what you were trying to do is to set things up so that there could be this wonderful celebration. Now, someone who is a black and white Christian who cannot kind of comprehend that would say, well, if you're going to have a surprise birthday party, make sure you don't lie. And if you have to lie, you tell them the truth, and then it's just a birthday party without a surprise, right? You get the point there. The goal there really isn't to lie. The goal there is for them to experience the wonder and the beauty of having a surprise time with friends. But on the other hand, joking and jesting, even if you may think it's meant only in fun, can be and often is harmful. Just look at this verse, Proverbs 26, 18 and 19. Like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I'm only joking. I mean, imagine you're outside your house, and it's in the evening or something like that, and there's some guys that are walking around, and they got fireworks with them. And they start shooting off the fireworks in your direction, you know, like, ah, we're going to get it close to them, ah, and one of them lands on your car, sparks fly, and it singes your face. And they come down and say, oh, I'm so sorry, we were only joking, ha, 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 ha. Friends, that's no joke. So there's a bad side, and there's a... I'm going to say a positive side, and we kind of wrestle with that. Now, my, the, the one that I came up with is the next one, simply because of the nature of what it is. I'm calling it the competitive lie. And here's what I'm talking about. It's what we see in sports. In football, the quarterback fakes a handoff so that he can actually throw a long ball and get a touchdown. His coach doesn't say to the quarterback, hey, listen, you can't do that because you're lying. I mean, there would go football, right? Now, I play soccer, and, and, and the whole point is you're supposed to do something to deceive the person that, that you're going to go this direction, but you actually go that direction. 
And when it comes to things like wrestling, a wrestler might say, I'm going to go for your head, but actually ends up going for the legs and, and pins that person. The point is they're using deception to accomplish their goal. Right? So there's this idea of a competitive lie. In all sorts of com- competitive sports and games, there is an understood acceptance of deception that is all part of the game, whether it's soccer, boxing, basketball, chess, or uno. We understand that. Okay? But it's this last one that's really the issue here. And we'll, this last one is called the lie of necessity. Now, I think it's important that we emphasize the word necessity. Because I know some of you moms right now are thinking, Pastor Rod, I wish I had not brought my kids this morning. <laughs> right? Because I don't want them to go say, say, Pastor Rod said it's okay to lie. No. A lie of necessity. Let's think through this. This is the one that has caused a lot of controversy. In fact, two great theologians that we know, John Calvin and Martin Luther, disagreed on this. Luther would say what happened here with the midwives and with Rahab was a glorious lie. (laughs) Calvin would say, oh, they should not have lied because God and his providence would have accomplished his purposes regardless. Okay? Two different sides. And you might come down on the plane in two different ways. My point is that good, solid theologians of history would come to two different different conclusions on this, right? So this one asks the question, is it ever appropriate to tell a lie in order to serve and protect your neighbor? Well, it might be good for us to try and define what a lie is. Listen to what Sam Storms says. A lie is an intentional falsehood that violates someone's right to know the truth. But there are cases in which people forfeit that right to know the truth. Just think about that. A lie is the intentional declaration or communication of a falsehood designed to deceive someone who has a moral and legal right to know the truth. A lie is telling an untruth to someone to whom you are morally and legally obligated to speak the truth. There are, however, certain occasions in which you are not under obligation to tell someone the truth. And he gives the example in times of war, criminal assault, etc. John Piper says, anytime you lead a person to believe a falsehood, it's a lie. He goes on and says, it is possible to be a godly person who walks by faith and yet in extreme situations that are life-threatening, feel constrained to lie in order to obstruct wickedness. Now see, the lie of necessity here. Not just, oh, it's okay to lie. So I would argue that under dire circumstances, it is appropriate to tell a lie. Now again, you might think, I can't believe my pastor is saying this. My kids here are here this morning, and if, pastor, you open Pandora's box... Online, I will never hear the end of it. Friends, I understand it's dangerous, but friends, living life in a foreign land is dangerous. Let me give you a few more illustrations to tease this out a little bit. Imagine you had three beautiful daughters, but one day a group of men came to your door and they said, we want your daughters. Hand them over or let us in so we can take them, have our way with them, and sell them into sex trafficking. What are you going to do? Well, I have to speak the truth. They're upstairs playing in the room. Would you like me to get them for you? Is that how you're going to respond? 
Are you going to try to overpower them? You probably wouldn't be able to. Or are you going to lie to protect them? It's a lie of necessity. It's an extreme situation. It's there to protect innocent people from wickedness. And think through this. Friends, when people's actions and intentions are evil, they have lost the right to expect the truth. Let me say that again. When people's actions and intentions are evil, they have lost the right to respect the truth. It would be insane to say to these people, yes, my daughters are upstairs, let me have them come down so they can go with you. You would be violating your responsibility, if you were the father, of your responsibility before God to protect these girls. Simply because I have to speak truth. Now, I understand the objections. Let's think through them. I'm sure that some of you right now are having a difficult time. You're struggling a little bit because you're, you're coming at it in a very black and white way. In your culture that you grew up with, you've always understood lying to be a sin, and you're right. God says it is a lie. So no matter what the situation is, you always tell the truth and trust that God has it all under control. That's the kind of paradigm that you and I have grown up with, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but what I do want to say is that there are examples in Scripture that give us some illustrations as to the possibility of a circumstance where a lie of necessity is the right thing to do. Let me give you another example. This comes from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he says this, a teacher asks a child in front of the class whether it's true that his father often comes home drunk. It is true, but the child denies it. What is the child to do? Does he tell the truth about his father and bring shame on his family and on himself? Does he disclose to the class something that is a private matter only for their own family to know and understand? Or does he lie by denying it? Bonhoeffer says the child is not wrong to lie. He suggests that it is the teacher who is at fault here rather than the child by abusing the relationship and the expectation that the truth be told within the classroom setting. The teacher exploits the obligation to tell the truth to force the student to reveal his father's weakness in front of the class and to violate his family loyalty. See, friends, sometimes we need to be able to think rather than just function on something that just appears to be black and white. Now turn with me to Exodus chapter 20 and verse 8. Exodus 20 and verse 8. We know this as the section of Scripture called the Ten Commandments. I want to walk through a couple of them with you, and I want you to see that all we, although we hold the Ten Commandments up as dear that there are some illustrations of the spirit of those commands that even the Lord Jesus himself affirms when they are not necessarily upheld. Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. Excuse me, I need to get there. 
Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall not do any work, you or your son, your daughters, your male servants or your female servants, your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. Now here we have the fourth commandment. It says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Yet David and his men ate some of the showbread on the Sabbath, and Jesus uses that illustration, uses that story, and basically says it's not a violation of that fourth commandment. Yet we would read it and say they violated the fourth commandment. Jump down to the fifth commandment. What does it say? Honor your father and mother. Yet Jesus says, you can't be my disciple unless you hate your mother and father. Say, hmm, okay. All right. The sixth commandment, what does it say? You shall not murder. But if you turn to Exodus 22 and verse 2, you don't have to right now, but if you were to do that, you would find there that there are guidelines to protect yourself and your possessions and your family by killing an intruder. And it's the same here in the ninth commandment. Thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor. And friends, that bearing false witness is a courtroom scene because of your slander and your malicious intent, that you're not giving a truthful account and are giving someone else a punishment that they may not fully deserve. Now, back to our text. It is my assessment that both Shifra and Pua did lie, but that their lie was justified because they were seeking to obstruct wickedness from taking place. In fact, from a literary perspective, how this is laid out for us, one could argue that we have two pictures here. We have evil shrewdness in the person of Pharaoh as he is seeking to dominate and destroy the Hebrew people, and we have godly shrewdness from the midwives who are seeking to protect God's people from an evil overlord who wants to commit terrible harm. Now, friends, we know that God hates lying. We know that God calls us as his children to be truthful and honest in our dealings with people as we live our lives in society. But I do believe that there are extreme situations that are life-threatening where good and godly people feel constrained to lie in order to stop wickedness. And I hope that you and I never, ever have a time when we're faced with such a dilemma. And more than likely, we're not. But what is clear is that Scripture recognizes that there are such times. Now, why can I be so confident about this? It's not because I'm so smart. I'm not. It's not because I have a direct phone to God and I talked about it to him last night, although I did talk to him about it last night. But friends, it's the tone of this text that is screaming to us. These midwives acted in the way they did because they feared God. And notice what happens here. We move from first question, the midwife's response, to the tension that now continues in this text. It flows out of the first section, the slavery section, now into this section. As a result of the midwives' encounter with Pharaoh, this is what happens. We see the continuing tension between blessing and bitterness. God continues to bless, and Pharaoh then continues to his, his bitter campaign against the Hebrew people. Let's look, first of all, at God's blessing as it continues. 
It says, so God dealt with the midwives. What would God do? Would he confront them? Would he chastise them for lying? Would he punish them for their sin? No, none of that. What does God do? How does he deal with the midwives? Well, because of the midwives' actions, two things take place. First of all, God blesses the nation. It says, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. God continues to fulfill his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No earthly king will hinder God's purposes to keep his promises. God will, will do what he desires. No king, however powerful, will stand in his way. Why? Because he's God. And he keeps his promises. But not only was it a blessing to the nation, notice what happens. There's a blessing to the midwives. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. So not only does God commend them for the valiant defense of the people of God, he blesses them personally. Friends, do you notice there's, there's no condemnation of their lying to Pharaoh, only a commendation that they feared God. This text is saying, here are two women that are your examples. So we see the blessing that continues in the nation, in the midwives, but we also see the bitterness that continues here. And verse 22 is chilling, isn't it? Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, all, right, all his, his cabinet, all the leaders there, every son that is born of the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Pharaoh's goal is to stop the Israelite people from growing for fear that they will rise up and join Egypt's enemies. Why? They're too mighty and there are too many of them. Again, we go from slavery to abortion. Now we move into infanticide. Kevin DeYoung captures the significance of this when he says the following. Sadly, that is not the last time that sort of command would be given. Throw the baby boys into the Nile. It'll be quick, easy, painless, mess-free, and hassle-free, like putting their body parts in the freezer and bringing them out to the dumpster with the trash. He continues, Surely it is no coincidence that the first plague that came upon Egypt was to turn the Nile into blood. You want a river to bleed? The Lord asks, I'll give you a river of blood. Friends, this is powerful stuff. And yet, even as we move in this story, you would say, well, okay, where's the deliverance? <laughs> God continues to bless, and bitterness continues to also increase. I do find it a little intriguing, though, don't you? That these midwives were blessed by God to have families in the midst of this evil context. God was at work and continued to be at work. Now, let's draw our attention then to this concluding thoughts here. I just have two things that I really want to drive home here. Our time is just about gone, so let's think through this. I want to ask you, first of all, do you live with a healthy fear of God. What is the fear of God? 
It is to recognize that the God of Israel is the one true God and is worthy of our worship. It is to recognize that this God is sovereign over his creation. It is to be in awe of his many attributes. That's why the men right now are going through a book on the attributes of God. We want to see God as all-powerful, all-knowing, present everywhere, holy, pure, just, patient, and loving, and so on. When we have this wonderful picture of God, it helps us then to fear him in the right way. It is to seek to live your life in humble obedience to his word and his will. It is to act boldly for his glory, his name, his reputation, because you know who he is. And let me put it this way, friends. The fear of God, the knowledge of his greatness, of his sovereignty, of his power, makes people humble before God, but strong before kings. It makes little people into great people. It makes two Hebrew women inconsequential in the world's eyes into heroines of world history. Isn't it wonderful that one of the great books of the Bible begins with two women who, because they feared God, took on the Pharaoh of Egypt with all his power and majesty and left him looking like a fool. And as we continue on in in Exodus, we'll notice some more women that will come on the scene. Do you live with a healthy fear of God? I want to encourage you, friends. Mark that as a characteristic that you are shooting for in your life. It motivated these midwives to make hard decisions in hard circumstances and ultimately to glorify God. Secondly, do you grieve over the rampant desensitizing of the killing of innocent children in the womb? I'm going to say this carefully, but I think this is very, very clear in Scripture. To be pro-choice is to choose to violate the life that God has already chosen. That little baby in the womb is a baby that God has created. Your choice is not the issue. The life of that child is the issue. And I know it's complicated with all sorts of things that are happening maybe in someone's life. To be pro-choice is to shake your fist at God while at the same time claiming to be compassionate. I fear that in the West we have more compassion for how we treat our pets than we do for the innocent child in the womb. We read the story and we're horrified by Pharaoh. But we go to work and people talk freely about the killing of children in the womb. It's a sad state of affairs for our culture. Friends, what is driving your view on the practice of abortion? Is it what society preaches? And friends, you can be sure that they have been and are preaching their own gospel that matches their agenda. Or is it what God has already said? Does the fear of God drive your worldview so that the choices you are making bring honor to God? 
two things really flow out of this text, right? Fearing God, protecting the innocent. These midwives are an incredible example for that. My friends, as I mentioned earlier, the Lord Jesus Christ himself understands what it's like to have the world against him. He understands what it's like to, to, to run against the current. But he endured the shame. He endured the suffering. He went to a cross. He died on that cross to provide deliverance for all those who would put their faith in him. We who were enslaved are now set free. These women allowed these children to live. Yes, even into slavery, but this was the beginning of the deliverance. God is at work, and God has been at work, and God ultimately finished the work in Jesus Christ on the cross. And if you are enslaved today, you can turn to him and you can find deliverance. Lord, help us today to contemplate the things that we find in this text. Lord, they're not easy. And I'm sure that many of us here today in our hearts are bouncing around with different thoughts and ideas and views and angles on what's taking place here. But may we be able to step back and to see how you are commending these women because of the actions and choices that they have made that flow out of a fear of you. May those same actions, those same attitudes, those same purposes be true of us because we are rooted in a heart that is committed to fearing you and living out of that worldview and out of that passion and out of that desire for your glory. Lord, may we never, ever, have to make a decision that would be similar to what these midwives face. And yet, Lord, may we be encouraged that if that decision ever does come, that you will give us wisdom, discernment, and hearts that are rooted in you as we open our mouths and seek to glorify you in those difficult times. Lord, we ask this now in your precious name. Amen.